The economic vitality that is visible at the Brooklyn Navy Yard today is a far cry from the way it once looked. For almost two centuries, it was a shipbuilding facility. After being decommissioned in the 1960s, it became an industrial park. Now the Brooklyn Navy Yard is a mixed-use complex that's home to a growing number of eateries, tech companies, film production studios, and other businesses. It's also the focus of a new documentary. Good morning. I'm Robin Shannon, and on today's Fordham Conversations, I'm joined by Mark Street, Program Director of the Visual Arts Program at Fordham University. His documentary, Morning, Noon, Night, Water, Land, and Sky, is an abstract exploration of the resurrection of the Brooklyn Navy Yards. So, Mark, what prompted you to want to do a documentary on the Brooklyn Navy Yard? Well, I was a artist-in-residence there last year. They have a program, six artists per year. There's no actual studio involved, but they give you a uh, key to the gate, as it were, and access to the archives and things like that. So my cohort, poets and painters and visual artists, did a variety of things. And I just sort of wandered the space. And I'm very interested in work as a theme in a lot of the films I make. So I was intrigued by the work being done there. And, of course, in New York City, it's all cafes and uh, loft spaces these days. So it, it gives me a jolt to see people actually moving earth and digging ditches and things like that. So I just looked. I looked and observed. I went some 20 times or so early in the morning, uh, late at night, and let the play speak to me in whatever way I could. So you didn't go in with a concept for the film. You sort of let it develop from what you saw around the Brooklyn Yard. Yeah, that's a, you know, I sort of shuttle between um, so-called pre-production, determining pre-production things where you have a script or an idea and you make that and, you know, things that are based more on just letting the material speak to you. Uh, I've been a street photographer, which is weird because my name is Mark Street, for 40 years. And, you know, a lot of it's just carrying a camera around and sort of having the ethos of going out into the streets and seeing what speaks back to you. And, of course, there's a tradition of still street photographers, centuries old. But we don't think about filmmakers as much in that vein. And I'm as inspired by that as I am by other filmmakers. You didn't shoot this documentary in a traditional way. There's no narration, and the screen is filled with, like, a collage of green, gray boxes, sometimes with different images. So how do you describe your technique? Well, you know, on the most technical level, it's 16-millimeter film, which I shoot with a Swiss-made camera called the Bolex, which is a wind-up camera. In other words, there's no motor, no batteries. It has a coil in it. You wind it up, and it gives you a 20-second shot, and then you have to wind it up again. In this day and age, it's almost intellectually perverse to shoot such a camera. People are shocked by it. So I shot about 12 rolls of black and white, white, which is 36 minutes worth of material. And then I took the material back to my house and hand processed it in buckets in my basement, dunking, you know, clumps of film into developer stop and fix and then projecting it. And this yields all sorts of blemishes and tactile intrusions on the photographic film. You know. Was it something that you could control or were you going to be like, well, let's see what happens when I do it this way? A little bit of both, but but the latter is definitely part of it. You know, you want to get image, right? <laughs> you want to get image, but 
But the gouges that come from dunking this sensitive film in a bucket as opposed to winding it up professionally on a spool are all unexpected and have these sort of abstract intrusions. Um, so that was one element. And then the other was uh, digital photography, which I'm also uh, comfortable with. Um, completely different, uh, you know, vibe to that. And then there was some archival footage from the Brooklyn Navy Yard uh, archives of a scuba exploration when they were exploring a ship that had sunk in those waters, the USS Ohio. Um, I also shot analog 35-millimeter still film. In other words, you know, wind it up in a camera, shoot it, digitize it after the fact. And I also used what we call found footage or archival footage, uh, more like found footage. Uh, there is a distinction between archival and found. Which is? Well, archival is more like you're looking for something and you go to the National Archives or something and you say, I'm looking for, um, you know... Uh, a shot of a ship. Yeah, I'm looking for Fidel Castro in Havana, you know, the speech he gave in Havana um, after the revolution or something like that. Found footage is where you sort of come upon footage and say, well, I can use this in some ways, you know. But I, I made a film in 2000 called Fulton Fish Market about the Fulton Fish Market in its waning days down there. And I went down there and shot between midnight and five in the morning uh, some dozen times or something like that. And made this sort of experimental documentary, painting on the surface. And I had a print of that, a 35-millimeter print, which I then bleached and and painted over the top of that. And I used, you know, embedded that in this film about the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Because I couldn't get into that. There's a lot of fish mongers and fish workers. I couldn't get in to film them. So I sort of went back to my own archive um, and used that footage. And then there's one shot from a really wonderful... Um, experimental archivist named Craig Baldwin, who actually is coming to town and doing some shows at the um, Metrograph and other other theaters. And, uh, he has a, a really funky artist's archive in his basement with 16-millimeter films arranged by type. You know, if you're looking for something on smoking, he'll say, ah, oh, check out this film, and he'll sell you a clip of it. It used to be a dollar clip uh, when I lived in San Francisco many years ago. It may be more now. But anyway, he had a shot. I said, why don't you go on your archives and think about ocean and water? And he he gave me one shot of a guy sort of throwing a, a rope from the ship onto the shore. So, Mark, did you even know at one point that it was going to come out so great? Or was it kind of like, well, you know what? This could have came out a mess. Like, what were you what were you thinking in the process of like the end result? Absolutely, every film I've made is is. Or was it the journey? Well, the journey, the journey. Yes, I always say process and product. Uh, that's what I'm interested in. But you know, I think all filmmakers have a moment where they don't know whether anything is holding together or not. Even script-driven narrative filmmakers, right? You sort of go, you know, you sort of you buy into the world of the film, and then you know, three quarters of the way through, you go, "Wow, I've created the world I wanted to create, but is it any good?" You know, maybe more so with this film. You know, because it is all experimentation, and a lot of it's in the editing room, right? You're not following a script. You're not putting this next to this next to this. You have these ideas, most bad, some good. You follow them down for a while and sort of see what the ending texture ends up to be. In the editing process, 
did you have any collaborators that were sort of saying, okay, you know, did you have any collaborators, first of all? Um, I have a um, someone who helped me edit for a few days on this, Sarah Jacobson, a filmmaker in her own right. I think she only spent a few days on it. And I usually work alone, especially for this kind of film. It's an artist-made film. And I think the model, I mean, not that artists don't have assistants and things like that, but, you know, I'm sort of more drawn to the studio model in the sense that a you know visual artist goes into the studio and experiments around and some things work, some things don't, uh, as opposed, frankly, to the filmmaking model. Script, producer, backers, test audience, etc. The film is a little bit over 16 minutes. Did you know it was going to be that short? Did you plan it? Or was it like, I'm finished? Like, how, is it, how did you know it was done? That, I think, is the biggest struggle sometimes. I, I completely agree with you. By the way, it's 18 minutes. Oh, 18, um, sorry. It's all right. That's okay. It felt right. It felt right. Uh, maybe I showed it to a couple people. They they liked it. And, yeah, you never really know. I mean, I think um, I compare it to cooking. You know, you uh, filmmaking, there's all about measurements and technical things. And then at a certain point, you go, well, I'm hungry. <laughs> Enough salt. I'm ready to eat. <laughs> Enough salt. I'm ready to eat. Exactly. Yeah. How long did the process take to shoot and how long did it take to edit? Can I say one thing? Mm-hmm. That I forgot to mention the last answer. When you asked how long it, it, it was and, and what I meant it to be, a filmmaker friend of mine once said, she was making a feature film and she said, but I'm open to it being anywhere from two minutes to 120 minutes. <laughs> and I thought that was really such a wide open and such a such a full-throated embrace of the process you know and most of us in film it's like is it a short is it a feature is it a long feature you you label know? It. yeah these arbitrary uh kind of distinctions you know supposedly the 90 minutes thing came up because they figured out that somebody could have a couple glasses of wine sit through 90 minutes of a narrative without having to use the bathroom supposedly that's the apocryphal story but anyway i uh i never thought it was going to be that long it was, wasn't one of those wildly expansive temporal journeys. Um, I always thought it was a pretty direct portrait. And I remember at one point thinking this needs something. It needs another. It needs to go somewhere else. And that's when I decided to do those tracking shots from a car, you know, looking at all the buildings. But once I had sort of, you know, challenged myself to get all the things I thought it needed, I figured it was done. So you chose to do a lot of the filming with images of like the workers uh why did you choose to focus your film on like the people and the infrastructure instead of instead of like the newer businesses offices and some of the trendy places that are being publicized now as like the go-to place at the brooklyn yard um a couple reasons first of all i feel like that those entities worthy as they are have voice Right. And they are visible in our culture. You know, Russ and Daughters and um, I think they're putting a um, Wegmans out there or whatever, you know, they're sort of high profile businesses. And I really I was more interested in the physical surroundings and the sort of anonymous workers. I'm also making another film now that's very interview heavy. And a lot of it's about finding people who want to sit down for an interview, much as you do, Robin. Um, So this was something else. I mean, I feel like I have two competing sides of me just psychologically. One is 
somebody who likes to engage with people and ask them questions and things like that, and another that's a little bit more of a voyeur, more standoffish, more wanting to be anonymous on a street corner and take photographs, like the street photographers were generally. I ran into Bill Cunningham once, the fashion photographer for the New York Times, two years before he died with his camera and Boy, did he not want to talk to me and or Why? anybody. Uh, well, I think he wanted to be anonymous. He wanted to be standing in the corner and not be seen or acknowledged. I mean, it's just a personal anecdote. But I think it's interesting that sometimes people who are the most focused on the observational don't want to be observed themselves. Yeah, don't want to be don't they don't want to be talking talking to you and answering your questions or something like that. They want to be in the moment, maybe. It would be in the moment. <laughs> That's right. Uh, how long did it take you to? Film and how long did it take you to edit? I filmed for about a year, and uh, the editing process it was on and off. I was juggling other projects, but it I would give it four months, and of course I was editing while I was shooting as well. You know, sort of letting the material progress, figuring out what I needed, going back, re-recording, trying to get shots that I thought were lacking, and things like that. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, talking with Mark Street, Program Director of the Visual Arts Program at Fordham University. His recent documentary, Morning, Noon, Night, Water, Land, and Sky, is an abstract exploration of the resurrection of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So, Mark, what was one of the most challenging things about filming morning, noon, night, water, land, and sky at the Brooklyn Yard? This is an anecdotal thing, and the Navy Yard might correct me on this, but um, but I think it maintains its military exclusiveness. It maintains, although it's a decommissioned Navy Yard. You still feel like you're going into a military place. The security is intense. I had a pass, but people would question it. Security guards, you know, I, I remember one, one afternoon, I think I was stopped five times by security guards. And I showed them my pass, and they were fine. But, but that was a difficulty. And then some of the businesses out there didn't want to be filmed, you know. There's one guy, there's a power plant in there with steam coming out of the smokestack. So I was... You know, I was filming, and the guy said, what, you, know, the, you know, what are you doing? You know, I feel like saying, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, I'm just filming. I'm just filming. He said, well, how do I know you're not a terrorist? And I said, I'm driving a Honda Accord. Terrorists don't drive Honda Accords. Anyway, I didn't know what to say to him. Oh, Mark. <laughs> So uh, I guess you could, you got to continue to film, I guess. I kept at it. I'm trying to think if, if anybody else literally stopped me. Have you noticed that it was because, because I noticed when I pull out a microphone, I can talk to you and they're fine, but when I pull out that mic, people get, you know, mic shot. Do you think it was because you had a camera or just because you were you? I think the camera <laughs> the changes camera. everything, yeah. you know, especially in this day and age. You know, it's weird with cell phones where it wants more photographed and more leery of being photographed. I wrote a, an article for Filmmaker Magazine called In Defense of Street Photography a few years ago and sort of talked about that quandary. You know, everybody's snapping pictures and everybody's completely paranoid about the guy with the camera snapping pictures. Mm. You know, so, Mark, your film was recently screened at the Museum of Modern Art. So how did that happen? I sent it in and I know the curator and um, 
sort of forgot about it. And then she wrote back, Kathy Brew is the wonderful guest curator of Documentary Fortnight at Museum of Modern Art. She's been doing it for three years now. And fit into a program she had called The Presence of Place about sort of the resonances of geographical, you know, areas of, across, across the world. So it worked out. It was a, I was really happy to be screening at the Museum of Modern Art again. How did the audience receive it? Well, it was sold out many times over. A lot of people, a lot of my friends couldn't get in. So that's uh, it's always nice, you know. I know the director. I know the filmmaker. Uh, sorry. <laughs> no room for you. <laughs> that's right. And it, people seem to to respond to the entire program. I'm happy to happy to say I was in, in it with some people I've known for, or one person I've known for many years who teaches at Bard College where I went to school, although she was not my teacher. So it felt a little bit like a family or a home or a nice group program where all the films spoke to each other in some way. Was there a Q&A? Q&A afterwards, yes. Well, any odd questions or interesting questions you want to Well, share? there's a moment in my film where there are two workers, and one of them, they both have yellow vests on, nothing to do with the political movement in France, of course, and one of them sort of slaps the other's uniform, but not in a malicious way and, and in a way that doesn't surprise the other one sort of knocking something off his uniform or something like that. And then the person who does the knocking does this little dance. It's just such a beautiful, unexpected moment. And someone, interestingly, wanted to know what that was all about. And sorry to say, I couldn't really answer. I didn't know what it was. I just sort of, you know, let it surprise me. That's when you were being the voyeur. That's when I was being the voyeur. I always tell my students, and I think it's true, you know, let your documentary, let any film surprise you while you're making it because then it will surprise the audience. And, you know, if you have a film that's predetermined, I think it's less likely to surprise the maker, keep the maker involved in the process, and also give the audience a jolt in that way. You hear that about directors sometimes when they have to answer the same questions over and over and over again. They almost become detached. And, you know, you want to be that person that asks them a question that makes them think as opposed to, yes, my film was great. Yes, Matt Damon was in it. Yes, he's wonderful to work with, you know, along those lines. So, Mark, what do you hope the audience for Morning, Noon, Night, Water, Land, and Sky take away from watching the film? I hope the contrasting visual landscape of the film take them on an unexpected journey. So many times, you know, we can read a film immediately, rom-com, issue-oriented, lefty documentary, you know, action, thriller, whatever. And I don't think genre-defying. I think it's essentially an experimental film, but hopefully it invents to some extent its own language. And it, you know, it has a new and fresh way of looking at the world. And that's really, really all I hope for. I want to ask a few personal questions. When did you recognize that filmmaking wasn't just going to be a hobby? This is something that you wanted to do for, for, for a lifetime, for a living. Well, you know, I was interested in film, as we all are, kind of in the culture when I was in high school. And, you know, I remember reviewing Apocalypse Now from my high school newspaper. But at that point, I was doing photography and sculpture and other things. And I didn't see how filmmaking could be artisanal, not artistic, but artisanal. I didn't see how you could create a film in the same way that a poet writes a poem or short story or something like that. And then I went to Bard College in the um, mid-'80s and studied with Dolphus Meckes, among others, 
Jonas Mekas, who just died, uh, his brother, um, two Lithuanian escapees, displaced persons for many years and then sort of embraced this personal style of filmmaking with the Bullock's camera. And it, it was there that I saw films by, you know, Shirley Clark and Carolee Schneemann, Stan Brackage, Andy Warhol. And I realized, oh, yeah, you could just get a camera, you can go out and make these kind of modest gestures that are equivalent to a photographer shooting 36 frames of film on a roll, processing it, editing it, etc. What do you think was the most important lesson that you had to learn that had a positive effect on your filmmaking? That's such a good question. I think I'm always having to remind myself to take risks, you know, and, you know, filmmaking, of all people, I think it was in Kurt Vonnegut's autobiography, who I haven't read for years, but I did as a teenager. He said, oh, the thing about being a novelist is it's not that you don't get better, but there's no assured success. It's not like you figure out how to make a violin and then you do it the rest of your life, you know. And I think he even gave grades to all his books and some of the later ones he gave an F to, you know. And there's always that possibility of risk with filmmaking and art making and writing. And oddly, you have to tell yourself to take risks or the work is not new. You know, you have to to sort of go to, to go to uncomfortable places. And I think that we were talking earlier about voyeurism and shyness and things like that. You know, with each film, I try to challenge myself psychologically. You know, I'm not that good at asking people to sit down on camera with me. Let me work on that muscle a little bit with this new film, you know. Um, and I can't think of what new muscles I flexed with Morning, Noon, Night, Water, Land, and Sky. But I was always trying to reinvent myself with each new film. To me, it seemed like control because you weren't in control. I mean, like you said, it, anything could have came out the way you did it. Were you happy with the end result? Yeah, I was actually pretty thrilled with it. And, you know, I've been making films for 30 years now. Sometimes I finish them too early, you know. Sometimes I, I could have worked in them a little bit longer, I think. And this one sort of, I felt like I had something, and then I felt like I didn't overwork it or underwork it. So I was I was very happy with it. When it comes to something like filmmaking, some people have said it's hard to get started. Some people have said it's hard to keep the momentum going. How do you do both? How do you, you know, not just you, but even giving advice to maybe a young filmmaker, what steps do they need to take to get started and then to keep moving and not be discouraged or not say, hey, you know what, I don't think this is good enough to show anybody or along those lines? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to develop a thick skin. You know, you can't let those rejections pierce you, really. You know, you have to sort of look at the long view and, you know, keep working. It's almost like a you know, I've heard it compared to yoga or Zen practice, neither of which I do. But you just sort of go do it. You go to the gym. I'm going to go. It's, you know, I'm going to go four times a week. You know, I'm going to spend I'm going to spend the time in the studio. So that work ethic is really important. And I think it mitigates the vulnerability you have uh, when a curator says, thanks, but no thanks. Or not even that. They just don't re <laughs> reply to your email. So that's, I sort of take solace in the work. I sort of, when when it feels like I'm not getting the response I needed, I'll just, you know, try to get into the film, into the world I've I've created. And in terms of what sustains you, I really think more and more as I get older, I think it's 
both looking towards people who came before you. My old film professor, Barbara Hammer, has been struggling with an illness for many years and has expressed her desire to die in a, in a dignified way. But she is someone I look up to, I learned from, and I'm happy to honor her in whatever way I can and, and spend time with her. She actually asked me to finish one of her films that she wasn't able able to. It's an honor and something that makes me a little afraid, but glad to do it. And I think that honoring those who came before us, looking at them and saying, who do I admire in the field, both for their work, but also their grace in the face of rejections and the face it. nobody thinks they're getting everything they deserve nobody right but who's gracious about it right and who sort of says well I've gotten a lot you know and I can tell you you know among the people I like you know there are people who are 20 years older than I who say I've gotten what I, I've gotten and uh, I'm happy to celebrate what I got and I have people say I can't believe that guy never returned my phone call 15 years ago Obviously, the former are my my true guiding lights, you know. Um, I will say that community is important, and it's particularly difficult. When I was coming up, as they say, you had to find umbrella organizations that supported your work. You needed to rent cameras. You needed to rent flatbed editors and 16-millimeter. There was a place in San Francisco, Film Arts Foundation, where I moved right after college, and they had a film festival, and they rented equipment, and they had symposia and workshops, and it just all meant so much to me. I met people there. I would bounce ideas off them. These days, you know, my students tell me, oh, my parents are going to buy me a uh, digital camera for graduation. Reasonable gift, right? They have their camera. They have their laptop with editing material on it. So they have to go outside to seek people to speak with, you know, and I think that community is more and more important to me, you know. And I think the other thing um, in regards to community is you can do something that's not about your film or your career. You can host a screening. You can introduce somebody to a film festival. You can be part of a discussion. You can say something critical, positively or negative about somebody's film in a public forum. You know, you being part of the conversation gets you out of the solipsism, which tends to envelop filmmakers and artists, I think. Now, I've heard that L.A. is the place to create TV and films, and New York is for stage and Broadway. Agree? Disagree? Uh, disagree. Uh, L.A. So is on. terrible for the kind of film that I make. Really terrible. I love Los Angeles. I spent a month out there shooting last summer, and I love everything from the diversity to the, um, you know, California's forward-thinking environmental policies to the museums and things like that. But when it comes to independent film, it's a one, it's, it's, it's all focused towards this one type of filmmaking, right? Not even a lot of documentary spaces, really. Um, New York, I think, is, is much more all-embracing. You know, uh, you have places like Union Docks in Brooklyn, the greatest place to see documentary film, great conversations there. The Maisel's Documentary Institute up in Harlem. You know, you have these smaller spaces where you can have a conversation, you can have an alternative viewing experience. You said earlier that 
when you went and did your documentary that it was a lot of kind of observing. How do you think that would have played out differently, whether it be in L.A. or maybe San Francisco, where you once lived? You know, L.A., the whole car thing, which I sort of get into when I'm out there just because it's so... <laughs> so weird, so much different from it's how It's hard to get around without a car in L.A. It's hard to get along with, uh, yeah. So that isolates you a little bit. That makes street life a little bit more diffuse, right? You stand in Herald Square, which is a wonderful place to shoot, you know, and you're, you know, it's kind of like you have all this stuff going on, all this street theater, you know. There's street theater in L.A. too, but there's, you know, it's a little bit more diffuse, you know. So, Mark, what's next for your documentary, Morning, Noon, Night, Water, Land, and Sky? I, I will send it out to film festivals. I will, you know, fold it into programs I may be doing at experimental places around the country. I'm going to do something at a place called Moviate in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I'll, I'll show that film. I'm making a longer film called Work Songs, which is a more or less based on Studs Terkel's book, Working, from the 70s, where he interviews he interviewed people in various professions, asking them what gave meaning to their work. So I've been hard at work at that. I'm almost done. I have 30 interviews with everybody from Longshore Women in San Pedro, California, to a crossing guard in Brooklyn. And I just met somebody on the train today who I'm going to interview just on the way up here. But anyway, that, you know, it's a film about work. It's a much different formal film. It's a little bit more conventional in it in its delivery. But I could see this unconventional 18-minute short playing with that and having a kind of dialogue with each other. Okay. Mark Street, thank you for coming in. Thank you, Robin. Great questions. I'd like to thank my guest, Mark Street, Program Director of the Visual Arts Program at Fordham University. I'd also like to thank my producer, Andrew Millman. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.